Church Life Today is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. Life, for the vast majority of humans, is not very glamorous. It involves doing a lot of boring and tedious things like paying taxes, cooking dinner, and sweeping the floor. And yet, these everyday tasks seem to vex millennials. This generation has suffered from widespread ridicule for laziness and for the inability to grow up. But, somewhat paradoxically, millennials also seem exhausted. Those words open an essay recently published through the Church Life Journal, where the experience of work and its consequences for especially millennials living today was juxtaposed with the understanding of work that emerges from the Christian tradition and is hidden within the life of Christ. The essay is entitled, A Catholic Response to Workism, How to Lose at Life. The author is my guest on today's show. She is Elizabeth Klein, Assistant Professor of Theology at the Augustine Institute. And I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and Spoke Street Media Network. Elizabeth Klein, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Liz, your essay on workism built off two widely read articles that appeared in recent years. One of them is by Anne Helen Peterson, whose article, How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation, it just went completely viral. It seemed like everybody read this. It received lots of attention. And at least from what I saw, it seemed like a lot of confirmation. People were were saying, yeah, she she's really put her finger on something here. For those who haven't read that article, what does Peterson basically say? Yeah. So one thing about that article that was really interesting to me is I don't think I have ever thought of myself consciously as a millennial, you know, and she actually talks about that in the article a little bit, like no, you know, kind of always pointing the finger at other millennials for giving millennials a bad name or whatever. <laughs> and when, but when I read the article, I was like, oh no, this is me. I uh, am a millennial. Uh, and so in the article, what she talks about is, I mean, the, the basic point is that millennials really struggle to do basic tasks on the one hand, like mailing letters, but on the other hand, they seem really burned out of working and work all the time. And so it's kind of like, how can both these things be true? And one of her positions, I guess, that she she argues for advances is that millennials are really trained to think that they can win at life and that everything has to be optimized. And this happens from an early age where we're doing all these extracurriculars and, you know, we're not playing in the street, we're doing organized soccer and, you know, we have to get X degree to do Y thing. Then we have to go to grad school and that we were taught that there was a kind of system. And if we followed the system, then we were going to get the cool job and get the paycheck. Uh, <laughs> and then that didn't really pan out uh, for a number of reasons, you know, economic changes or just the basic fact that not everybody can have a cool job. I mean, everybody knows that that's true and that not everybody can. And yet somehow every single millennial is bought into the lie that they're going to be the one who wins and gets the cool job and all that kind of stuff. So that's kind of kind of what her article says. And, and I thought it was a really great article because it does kind of try to solve this paradox of, on the one hand, people say millennials don't work very hard and, you know, they're hard to hire or they're lazy or whatever. You hear that a lot. But then on the other side, you also hear a lot about millennials having mental health problems, not having financial stability, not getting the same kind of hand up with the economy as as boomers do. And how can these things kind of go together? Mm. And for those who may not 
you know, be fully up to speed on where these generational markers are. In some ways, they're constructed. It's not a timeless truth. But millennials tend to be those folks who were born between the years of like 1981 and 1996. So at this point, um, into early adulthood. So that's the sort of generation that she was focusing on and that we're talking about here. So as you said, you know, this sort of pledge and promise to win at life and this observation that they tend to be terribly burnt out and everybody, well, a lot of people are complaining about millennials. And yet, on the other hand, they're working really hard. So what gives? In your essay, which in some ways starts with Peterson's article, you, like you're saying here, sort of appreciate what she's been able to shine a light on. And yet, it also seems like you you don't think she quite got it all the way right. Like there's something else going on there. Tell us about what you were seeing and what you tried to tease out. Yeah, well, with Peterson and some other kind of articles and people talking about this and millennial sort of frustration generally often centers around how millennials don't kind of have the financial advantages and they can't actually succeed with the path that they've been given. And the implication being, well, if we all could succeed financially, well, then that would is what would make us happy. And so the frustration comes with, well, I can't have the material goods that I want. And that's why I'm not happy. And so millennials maybe turn to like consuming experiences or, or some other thing that we think is going to fulfill us. But what I try to show in the article is that that's kind of the wrong point of view to begin with, that it's especially for a Christian to kind of buy into the idea that once you achieve the American dream, or once you climb the capitalist mountain, then you're going to be happy is really just false. And that in the Christian tradition, especially work has had a very different function, that work has actually been more something that helps you be attuned to creation, attuned to the creator, see your dignity as a human person. And often, especially uh, monastics, the the work they chose to do was really menial. Like they didn't Mm. choose to do a cool, fun, exciting job that they were passionate about. That's not how they found meaning. In fact, they chose to do really boring things like making ropes or, you know, weaving baskets or some kind of manual labor because they felt that that kind of work was very useful and freed them up to pray and to be more open to God. And so it's a very different perspective on work that seems very far from where we've arrived at today. So is this point, in other words, with millennials, which seems to be like this desire to win, as you said, like there had been some kind of pledge or promise that if you just follow the system and you do this point, then this point, and you move to that point, eventually you'll have the financial security success, you'll win. Right. That it, it, if I'm following you, it seems like that's a point of contrast with the Christian understanding of work that you're trying to sort of retrieve and represent alongside what Peterson is saying that What's going on in this Christian understanding of work, it sounds like, is actually an appreciation for the menial and the laborious and the routine. Is that right? Right. Like, well, winning in the Christian sense, if there can be such a thing, is seeing the value in what you're doing and where God has placed you. But really, in the article, what I argue or what I try to say is that there is no such thing as winning at life. I mean, that's to reduce life to a kind of skill you can master or a kind of system that you're going to conquer. And that's just a false understanding of life. You can't do that. (laughs) I mean, I mean the bare fact that life throws things at you that you can't control. And this is unfortunately has been the story of many millennials where because of the economic systems that we live in, often you're one illness away from, you know, not being able to make ends meet or having to move back home or whatever. And that ends up making a lot of people feel like a failure. And leads to things like depression and burnout and unable to cope with the day-to-day tasks. Because if you see, oh, I can't win at life unless I have a cool job and a house, 
and I get to eat all this awesome food that's like slow food, homegrown, straight farm to table, then I'm not a good person. Then why even bother? I'm just going to kind of languish away in my parents' basement because there's no hope. You know, you don't see any value in that in that life and the life that you actually have. Yeah. You know, Liz, something that going along with what you're saying here that I also kind of really that caught my attention in what you were writing is you talked about kind of branding, which has become so important for especially millennials. And in some ways, it's not just because millennials want to brand themselves. In other words, like you become known for certain things. And like you were talking about having like the right kind of food and the right kind of job and and the right kind of appearance. But also like this is what it seems gets valued not just socially, but in the marketplace, like you have to be the right kind of person. Can you, you know, dive into that with us a little bit, like the challenge and maybe the, well, certainly the obstacle of this notion or this urge to have to brand? Yeah, totally. I mean, I I didn't mean by my article to try to blame millennials for just being vain for some like arbitrary reason. I think everything that our generation is doing is expressing things that human beings have always done and needs we've always had. It just always comes out in different ways and sort of different times. And so it's, I think it's very clear in our society at large that we value appearances. And there's some, there's some crazy stat I heard that one of the top jobs that kids in middle school now say they want to have is YouTube influencer. So it's not just something that millennials are inventing. This is clearly something that society is valuing. And we don't value the hardworking millennial who works at McDonald's and is trying to save up enough to get out of their parents' basement. We look down on them and we despise them. So there's no wonder why those people don't feel like their work is valuable and don't feel like they have the resources to get out of that situation. And this is something I think that is kind of in a way involved in the end game of capitalism, where we've tried to optimize profits for the person at the top. And that can only come at the cost of sort of labor at the bottom, basically. I had a friend actually reach out to me after writing the article who said that maybe my article was only speaking to sort of middle-class white millennials and didn't include like the broader experience of all millennials. And, you know, maybe there's some credibility to that insofar as like, I'm talking about optimizing drinking water. So maybe that doesn't apply to every single millennial, but I think it does apply to all millennials in terms of the value that we're seeing in the work of all millennials and that it is really a human life issue. And I was really happy that Church Life Journal tagged the article as pro-life because that was actually something that I was thinking about, that this is a bigger problem than just millennials being vain and loving Instagram. This has to do with valuing a human life and valuing the work that they do, regardless of whether or not that work looks pretty or not. And in fact, we need people to do retail jobs. We need, if you want to eat at McDonald's, you need somebody to serve you a hamburger. And so just having that respect for everybody who's contributing to a better society and not sort of just flashing the prettiest jobs and the most exciting things and holding those up as you know, the goal of life and just pushing back a little bit against that narrative, I guess. This is Leonard DiLorenzo, and you're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Elizabeth Klein, Assistant Professor of Theology at the Augustine Institute. We're broadly discussing millennials and their approach to work following Dr. Klein's essay in the Church Life Journal entitled, A Catholic Response to Workism, How to Lose at Life. 
It was a really interesting comment you made about the most desired job for many middle schoolers being this social media influencer, Instagram influencer, YouTube influencer. So for those who aren't maybe aware of what that would be, these are certain individuals who have been kind of recognized for their ability to draw a crowd to get the attention of others. And so companies will then pay them to be able to kind of like feature their brand in the company's brand in the personal brand of this person who's an influencer, right? So the idea is in smaller ways, they have an audience and this is a way to get the brand of a company associated with the successful brand of an individual. And as a sort of quick aside, one of my colleagues here at Notre Dame, he told me that he has a student or he had a student last semester who was herself an Instagram influencer and was making $500,000 a year. We're talking about, I mean, this is real money, right? Like that's more than real money. That's how do you break from that? She was also miserable. So what's the, what, like what gives here? Yeah, it's really interesting. And and the stories, of course, of these Instagram, popular Instagram celebrities being miserable is, you know, legion. You can read all kinds of stories about poor, like 16 year old girls burning out of being an Instagram superstar because the life that's on screen isn't their real life. And so they're actually unhappy with their real life. And I think that that dichotomy just further reinforces what I'm saying is that we the goalpost is the wrong goalpost. Mm. You know, the goalpost being winning at life, having that successful job, uh, reaching to the top, getting the money, getting the house. Like none of those things are guaranteed to make you happy at all. And so that's what I think was the missing piece with some of these workism articles. I think they identified the problem very well, but I don't think they necessarily identified the solution, which is not to sort of reconfigure things to allow everyone to reach that goalpost, but to actually change the goalpost and to actually change what is a successful life. And for a Christian, a successful life is conformity to Christ, who by worldly standards did not live a very successful life. I mean, it didn't, it didn't look very good. Um, He didn't, you know, have a very good job. He didn't make a lot of money. Although I I did see a very funny millennial oriented post that said Jesus's big success was having 12 close friends at the age of 30, which is, you know, but, but that, that kind of demonstrates the self-recognition about what's wrong with the millennial way of looking at things. Like, because having 12 close friends at 30 probably actually would make you a lot happier than having a flashy, cool job at a tech startup. But we're not orienting our lives for those kinds of goals for some reason. That's such a great point. I've seen that too. These 12 close friends at the age of 30 and you laugh at it. And then for those of us who have been 30 at some point, you're like, oh yeah, that is actually quite an accomplishment. And only one of those friends betrayed him. What a, like this, that's a big win. You know, I, as we're talking about this and we think, let's think a little bit longer about this kind of idea of an influencer, which really kind of puts a, a fine point on this idea of a brand and winning and having the notoriety and being valued for who you are and what you do. There also seems to me to be this collective responsibility around changing the narrative there, right? So, and I think you're you're touching on this in, in your article as well, that it isn't just that this is a problem for the millennials that individual millennials themselves or a generation or those after them have to figure out how to be different. It's actually a collective responsibility to not have those kind of expectations because the influencer only exists because there is an audience that's willing to be influenced, right? That gives attention in this way. Can you think about this with me a little bit in terms of something like this collective responsibility for changing the goalposts, for changing the game, for leading towards a more kind of meaningful life ethic? Yeah. So in the article, what I focused on was a kind of theological approach to changing the goalpost, which was especially for Christians to understand that 
Christ has transfigured our suffering to be valuable and that we actually, when we fail rather than when we win, we have a kind of communion with Christ that's even deeper than success. And in fact, in the Christian tradition, success is often been seen as more dangerous spiritually than failure. And so, especially in this you know, time of Lent, as a time of kind of voluntary failures, Lent is supposed to be a time when you maybe set yourself up for something you can't succeed at, kind of fasting or or renunciation. And, what, and that's trying to teach you that you're totally dependent on God. And that's actually sometimes harder to see when you're successful, that you're totally dependent on God and that you should be totally conformed to Christ. So I do think for especially a Christian to have to kind of recalibrate what your expectations are for your life and what it's supposed to look like and what holiness is constituted in is important. But of course, there is also a social element that if we think that people who do menial jobs are valuable, we should probably pay them a living wage, for example, and make sure that they have health care, for example. And so I think both of those elements can go together. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Elizabeth Klein, Assistant Professor of Theology at the Augustine Institute. We're discussing millennials, their approach to work, and this is all, in a way, following Dr. Klein's essay in the Church Life Journal entitled A Catholic Response to Workism, How to Lose at Life. To have this Christian understanding, as you're saying, about what winning is in association with losing, I'm I'm reminded, for example, about this little the story that Dorothy Day tells in one of her essays about a letter that she received from an associate who said, you know, I, I had taken into my home a homeless person and I fed him and I allowed him to bathe and gave him my own bed to sleep in. And when I woke the next morning, I found not only was he gone, but my wallet was gone too. And Dorothy, her comment on this is that, you know, the saints – they wouldn't try to understand. They would just shake their head. That's basically what happens. And one of the things that appeals to me about that is she's actually bringing this forward as something that should appeal to our imagination. Like here is an image. Here is something worth following. That kind of example of even willing to to lose when doing the right thing and when performing a work of mercy to be taken advantage of in a way. It's a completely countercultural type of image because it should make you angry and infuriated. But mm-hmm. at the same time, she says the saints, they wouldn't try to understand. Yeah, I think that's, I love Dorothy Day. I think Dorothy Day is a, you know, prophet of failure. <laughs> <laughs> I, one of the reasons I love Dorothy Day so much is because she doesn't make holiness look easy. And, you know, I love all the lives of the saints, but I think especially for this millennial mindset that we're talking about, that she's really a valuable witness to how hard it is and how many failures she has. I mean, a lot of her projects are failures. The Catholic worker movement, you know, didn't outlast her. I mean, there are still Catholic workers and, you know, it it still has an effect, but really the kind of life that she lived has not lasted that long after her own life. It was a very difficult project that required a saintly figure to make it happen. And so, yeah, I think that's really wonderful. And what she's pointing to is really a Christ-likeness, you know, because Christ did this wonderful act of charity, you know, the, the greatest act of charity that there ever was to save the human race. And nobody appreciated it, actually, at the time, if you recall. So we have we actually have this very romanticized version of what it means to be a martyr, that you, you're giving yourself in love for somebody else, and it's so beautiful. And it is beautiful, but the fact of the matter is, is really hard, and it doesn't look very pretty. And in fact, it often isn't appreciated until after the fact. And so actually in my article, I spend a little bit of time talking about that as well. That sanctity often is not appreciated by those closest to the saint. And often the saint, the effect of the saint isn't felt until after their death. And so we often have to remember as Christians that 
we're workers in the vineyard and, you know, we may not reap what we sow. And that takes a great act of faith to work, to suffer, to do menial things, to do things that aren't fun, that nobody sees and actually believe it means something. That's an act of faith. But I think if we live our lives with that perspective and point of view, it really does change our everyday life and hopefully helps to change the paralysis that Anne Helen Peterson talks about with not being able to mail letters or cook food, or, you know, maybe it has something to do with millennials resistance to having children as well. I mean, having children isn't really that fun for the most part. (laughs) You know, in terms of these kind of like icons for the imagination and returning to kind of a desire for, in, in some ways, like a willingness to fail and to do the hard things. You brought attention in your essay to someone who up until very recently was completely anonymous and unknown, which is blessed Franz Jagerstetter. Now, more people would know of him now because of, as you said, Terrence Malick's film, A Hidden Life. And even before that, the book that actually brought him into the light of day was Gordon Zahn's In Solitary Witness, Right. Mm -hmm. Like, in other words, the whole title of the book and the whole title of the film is about here is a man who is unseen, who is obscure, Mm -hmm. who was one of the great number of anonymous saints in the history of the world and in his particular time and place during the Second World War. Is there a way in which obscurity is more conducive to holiness than notoriety ever could be? In other words, should obscurity in some way be pursued and desired? I think in the Christian tradition, the answer is yes. I think of something like the litany of humility, where you're supposed to be praying for less notoriety and praying that other people will be favored over you. I have to admit, I have a difficult time praying the litany of humility. (laughs) But I think that it really does stand in this long line of tradition of Jesus saying it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's hard when the world is so attractive to you to understand that the world is not the final destination. And so there really has been an effort in the lives of the saints to be more obscure, to hide themselves, to be thought worse than they were. I mean, there's all kinds of horrifying stories of saints, you know, refusing to repudiate a false charge against them, which of course is another way of following Christ. But to my sensibilities, that makes my makes my skin tingle to think, oh, I someone's gonna accuse me falsely and I'm just gonna accept that. But yeah, there really is that level, that level of sanctity throughout the tradition, I think. Well, and I think I, I'm right there with you. Like I that's one of the hardest things for me to actually pray honestly, right? Like to not only not seek notoriety, but perhaps to seek in some ways the opposite or be open to the opposite because and this goes right along with what Peterson's saying for millennials, and I'm a little I'm not quite a millennial, but I'll identify here. <laughs> so much of our potential for employment, success, like being a capable and trusted member of our community depends on our reputation and actually what is projected about us or what we allow to be projected about us, especially now in a hyper media age where we each become the producer of our own content. So there's a real cost in this, right? Like there is a real and perhaps lasting sacrifice for the Christian in not seeking notoriety, in other words, like Mm -hmm. that my reputation wouldn't be the one that's exalted. I won't be advanced as much. I often think about in this context too, you know, when I teach the Marian doctrines, I have students asking like, well, how is it possible that people kind of didn't notice Mary if she had no sin? 
And you're like, well, actually having no sin is pretty boring, you know? <laughs> and so there, there is a kind of, kind of lesson in that, that the Holy family was in a lot of ways hidden. Like people didn't think Joseph or Mary were necessarily anything special <laughs> at the time, or I'm sure some people noticed, but he definitely wasn't a YouTube influencer level of interest in the Holy family that Jesus until his public ministry lived a relatively normal, unknown life. The catechism says a life of manual labor. And I, I often think about that hidden life of Christ, the 29 or 30 years where basically nobody knew what he was doing. I mean, that's a very profound mystery to me. That isn't just, oh, we just didn't know what he was doing. It wasn't that exciting. It's Jesus lived a normal life and we're supposed to live a life like Jesus lived. He didn't live the life of a YouTube influencer. He didn't live the life of a wealthy and famous person that everybody paid attention to. Um, and for only three years was he the, the public teacher that you know that we know in the Gospels. And I think that that's by design, that the incarnation really redeems regular, ordinary human life. That's what Christ came to do. Hmm. I mean, that's such a great point. Like a life without sin is actually, well, it's pretty hidden. It's actually, it might appear to us pretty boring because again, like we want to see we actually know that if something can go wrong, it will go wrong, and we want to see what happens when it goes wrong, right? Like there's a reason why we're kind of drawn to Genesis 3 because the moment there's an opportunity, we know like how this story is going to play out, and we want to watch the train wreck. But there is none of that, like you're saying with Mary, and most of Jesus's life is is hidden. It's ordinary. It's manual labor. I mentioned at the beginning there were two viral articles that kind of made their way into your essay. The other was from Eve Fairbank, who wrote in the Huffington Post, I think the article is entitled The Rise of the Nuns. And somebody actually told me about that verbally first. And I just figured it was the N-O-N-E-S because we hear so much about the nuns, the disaffiliated. But actually, it was about the other nuns, N-U-N-S, The Rise of the Nuns. And what she was tracing was the recent uptick in vocations to the religious life, specifically among women. Maybe as a final comment here, what do you think that has to say, this kind of increased attraction to vowed religious life precisely among millennials and those younger than them? Yeah, I, by the way, love that article. I think it's so fascinating, especially because it's written by someone who's not very familiar with the Catholic tradition. And so just her perspective is, is very fascinating. And the numbers are really interesting with the, the uptick in vocations. But what I drew out in the article is that I think really that article speaks to all the exact same things that the other workism articles spoke to, which is that millennials feel burned out, like they've been trying to be, you know, the valedictorian and, you know, captain of the basketball team and get into the best school they possibly can and take SAT prep. And they're already feeling mid-college or by the end of college, like this is going nowhere. Like, why am I pouring out all this energy and nobody seems to care? And I don't seem to be in a better position than I was before. And they're looking at the religious life and being told Christ loves you no matter how much money you make. Christ loves you no matter if you made the basketball team or not. And you can do something valuable for God just where you are, just doing what you do with sincerity of heart. And the religious life really becomes this icon for the renunciation of the standard of the world. You know, to see a to see about religious woman in a habit, you all of a sudden say, oh, like someone believes that stuff. Someone believes the gospel. Someone believes like you should give everything and follow Christ. And they actually think that their life is valuable without a family or a career or even nice clothes and like eating whatever foods left over from Costco's and expired. Like that's what they like. They actually think that that is a good and perfect way to live. I just think that as seeing a, a religious, about religious like that, it's, it's a shock. And I think it's a really valuable thing. And I just wonder if 
you know, maybe that will be part of the healing of the vision of society. We're talking about kind of this communal responsibility to change the goalpost and change the way people see the world. And I think that that religious could play a really important role in that. That's a beautiful insight. I mean, it's, it's just as a final thought for me, like it seems like we're talking about freedom here that as you were describing the millennials at the beginning and it, it's not just millennials. Actually, this has probably become most of our society now. Like there's kind of the desire to be freed from the system that we're in and we want to we want to achieve, 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 achieve and get to the point where we can be free of it because we've arrived. And mm-hmm. what you, it sounds exactly. like you're saying about this attraction to the religious life is actually the message is, no, first Christ loves you. So you're free. Now, what do you want to do? In other right. words, right? Like now respond to that. And it begins in freedom rather than ending in freedom. And maybe that's the revolution of perspective that we need. I've been talking today to Elizabeth Klein. By the way, she's the author of God, if you didn't know. She wrote a book on God. And she's also the author of Augustine's Theology of the Angels. The article, her essay that we've been talking about today is entitled A Catholic Response to Workism, How to Lose at Life. You can find that at the Church Life Journal. Liz, thanks so much for spending time. Thanks for having me. It's a lot of fun. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Elevate 150 Financial Checkups at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Here's how it works. Go online and schedule a 30-minute phone call. They'll guide you through your credit report to find ways to improve your financial health. Then they'll send $150 in your name to redeem a radio. For information, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame FCU.